0: At first, you got to prove that there's an attorney client relationship. So you have to have agreed to represent the client. The client has to have agreed to be represented by you. So you've got that relationship. You have agreed to represent the client. They've agreed to be represented by you, and there are terms that govern that relationship. From that point forward, you owed a duty to the client as the attorney. And then you failed to discharge that duty within the confines of the law. And the law as it's defined for the purposes of legal malpractice is that the law has to be clear and well established.
1: Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good
2: morning, friends and lovers of the law. And welcome to See You in Court. I am Robin Fraser-Clark, and with me is my co-host, uh, the remarkable S. Lester Tate. Hey, Lester, r- how you r- doing? Remark today? away.
3: I just hope they're good remarks and not bad ones, you know. So uh, it's good as to as be look, with you today.
2: Yeah, as soon as I looked at your face, I remember I didn't have an adjective in mind right now. But... <laughs> <laughs> I could say the the long haired Lester Tate.
3: That's right. Yeah, I've uh, I, you know I've I've gone uh, gone gone country here. You know, gone back to my hillbilly roots during the during well, I the COVID. A little you
2: know. like Bobby Lee with the beard and, <laughs> and hair and looks good.
3: I like it, looks. Eddie Garland said that uh, about me the other night. I, I I hope he was comparing my my practice uh, as well as my looks. But uh, we, we were when we were at Old War Horse, It was kind of funny. That is
2: funny. Um, well, today we have a great program and we're delighted to have with us Attorney Jenny Jensen. Um, she is a trial lawyer with her own firm here in Duluth, Georgia, and specializes in legal malpractice cases and representing lawyers when they have been accused of behaving badly, which Lester, you also, we're going to talk about that, but you, you, you. Do quite a bit of that as well. So. We call it
3: lawyers and judges gone wild in my, okay. my, my office. That's, that sounds
2: that's, like fun. Yeah. Uh, I don't do any of that, but that sounds kind of fun. Well, let, let me introduce our uh, listeners to Jenny. Ms. Jensen is a principal in the Jensen firm whose current practice focuses on attorney ethics, encompassing a plaintiff's professional negligence practice, including legal malpractice, representation of both lawyers and clients before the Georgia Bar in disciplinary matters and fee disputes, serving as an expert witness in the areas of legal malpractice, attorney's ethics and attorney's fees, as well as a general litigation practice. Ms. Jensen also serves as a jury consultant and assists other attorneys with witness preparation and jury selection. She was named a rising star in 2005 and has been named a super lawyer for 2012 through 2022. Ms. Jensen was a member of the Georgia Bar Commission on Continuing Lawyer Competency from 2013 through 2018 and served as chair of the commission in 2017. Ms. Jensen was admitted to the Georgia Bar in 1990 and is admitted to practice in all Georgia trial and appellate courts, as well as the United States District Courts for both the Northern and Southern Districts of Georgia and the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. She received her undergraduate degree, a BS in political science, with an international studies minor from Georgia Southern. She is a graduate of the Walter F. George School of Law, where she got her Juris Doctor at Mercer University, where she was a member of Moot Court Board and Interstate Moot Court Team, as well as the Dan J. Bradley Fellow and recipient of the Class of 1974 Scholarship. Ms. Jensen's practice has focused extensively on civil litigation and appeals in state and federal courts. She has been a mock trial coach for over 10 years and presently coaches the Duluth High School mock trial team. She is also the mother of three children and knows what it is like to maintain a successful law practice while raising children.
0: Jenny, welcome to the show. Welcome, and thank you, Robin and Lester, for having me. Great to have you on. It's great to have you on. We've been friends
2: for a very, very long time. Um, and just reading your bio reminds me um, that we have a lot in common. Being mothers and children, have children, um, have your own law practice. But Lester and I both were, all, were on the continuing lawyer company, competency uh, board.
3: CCLC, yeah. Um,
2: yeah, CCLC. So we've, we've done that. And um and the, and the um, investigor- investigatory panel uh, and the review panel for, for Discipline of Lawyers. So that was a great experience for me, and I want to talk a little bit about, about that. But, um, but first of all, Jenny, tell us a little bit about yourself, about why, why you chose to be a lawyer, um, how you decided to go into this area of attorney ethics.
0: Well, I I kind of fell into the area of attorney ethics by accident. Um, I always wanted to be, originally I wanted to be involved in politics. My undergraduate degree is political science with a minor in international studies. But I found very quickly um, politics was not for me. And academically and intellectually, I enjoy it. The actual practice of politics did not satisfy my need to be helpful, to adhere to a higher code and to do things to further society. Unfortunately, the idealism that I had when I started studying political science was gone by the time I finished. So um, my whole life, everybody had always said, you should be a lawyer, Jenny, you should be a lawyer, Jenny, you should be a lawyer. I now know that that means other things as well as that you might be good at it. Um, So when I graduated from Georgia Southern, I decided, you know, I'm going to go to law school. Um, My father is a retired Methodist minister. So I grew up in the Methodist church with a very strong sense of right and wrong and helping other people and helping people less fortunate than we are. And politics was where I had planned to address that passion, if you will, turned out didn't seem like it would meet the need. So the law was the next logical choice. Um, And I didn't come straight to ethics and attorney malpractice from law school. It took me a while to get here, but looking back, my highest grade in law school, which should have foreshadowed this career change for me, was ethics. Legal ethics um, and professionalism was my favorite class in law school. It was my best score and it took no work because it just is part of how I understand the world, which is, I guess, why I ended up in law. Um, I started my career as a litigator, practiced in a couple of boutique litigation firms, doing a blend of plaintiffs and defense work. I've never been a strict defense lawyer. Most of my practice has been balanced with some plaintiff's work, some defensive type work. I've never worked for an insurance company, for example, um, in a defense capacity as an in-house attorney or at a firm that does that. Now I have represented and done work and from an expert witness in some defense postures um, since I've moved to this area of practice. So litigation early on and did a little bit of key Tam false claims, litigation, um, Medicare, Medicaid, fraud, and abuse. And after that, and had cut my teeth in court, I met Taylor Jones who was renowned by some as the father of legal malpractice in Georgia and Joined his firm and that began my conversion to an ethics attorney, which is what I do now and what I enjoy Um, it. I would say that the vast majority of attorneys practicing law in Georgia are ethical, honest and do a good job. But sometimes what is ethical is not as obvious as it should be. And even good lawyers can make mistakes and stumble into areas where they should not be. Um, So I do do some defense work in the attorney ethics arena as well. It's not just representing clients because the rules are complicated. Um, The fundamental basis for the rules is straightforward, but how to apply it to any particular situation is not necessarily as clear. So I do still primarily focus on representing clients who have been aggrieved um, by their attorneys but I also will represent attorneys who are having licensing issues with the bar or fee disputes with clients. And I testify as an expert witness. Um, The only other area of practice I currently pursue is one of my other passions is jury selection. I love picking juries. I love jury trials. I love trying cases. My cases will never get me into court enough. So I will work with other attorneys um, in helping them select juries and um, preparing their witnesses for trial. So that's kind of what I do and how I got here.
3: So um, I wanted to ask you, and, you know, I I think uh, a lot of us sort of, you know, Robin mentioned, I I do some of this. I ended up getting the triple crown of being on disciplinary authorities. People started calling me. And so I, you know, kind of uh, uh, waded into it a little bit. But one of the things that's that's always uh, sort of struck me and one of the things I think is not evident to the public, uh, sometimes, or, or maybe even to lawyers, is uh, the difference sort of between ethics and malpractice. You know, they're, they're, uh, they're like uh, overlapping uh, circles. They're certainly not concentric uh, yeah. you know, circles because, you know, you can, you can malpractice without being unethical or you can be unethical without malpractice. And some malpractice is unethical and some uh, unethical things are malpractice. Um, and I wonder if, uh, if if you've had a similar experience of having to sort of sort those things out uh, for for both uh, uh, clients and clients who are looking to report their lawyer or uh, or have a legal malpractice case, uh, but but also maybe for some lawyers.
0: Well, I kind of view the practice area as a Venn diagram. We have professionalism. We have ethics. And then over, and they kind of overlap. And then overlapping both of them, we also have legal not. We have legal malpractice, professionalism, and ethics. And some things touch all the circles. Some things touch two of the circles. Some things touch all three. I kind of think of the bar rules as the you have to professionalism is you ought to, and legal malpractice is you really shouldn't have. Legal malpractice is when it's too
2: late. Yeah,
0: it's it's too late. Um, You've you've messed something up. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've already done something. But now many lawyers and this is kind of my catchphrase when I talk about legal malpractice is the worst thing a lawyer can do is what I call ostriching. You've made a mistake. You know, you've made a mistake. And instead of coming clean, telling the client, calling your carrier, speaking to your colleagues and getting help. You just double down in that hole and let it get deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, and we all have a tendency to do that. But I would say that's the probably the biggest mistake I see lawyers make when they have these sorts of things. When you've made a mistake, just because you've made a mistake does not mean it's malpractice. And oftentimes, if you acknowledge your mistake and seek competent help, you can dig yourself out of that hole. Not always. Sometimes the fat lady has sung. But frequently, you can fix it, you can mitigate it, and you can resolve it if you're comfortable enough to reach out for help. And lawyers, I think both of you probably know, because you're strong, independent personalities, we are very, very reluctant to acknowledge a mistake to a colleague and to seek help. Um, so it is, it is just the nature of
2: lawyers, I think.
3: Yeah, I, I, I want to ask you, This is, this has been my experience, and this has been a uh, I think an evolving thing that I just feel like I see more and more and more of, which is, you know, we we talk about this like, uh, you, you know, uh, well, malpractice is you shouldn't have or, uh, you know, if you get a bar complaint, you know, do, are you afraid to reach out? And, you know, I, I, I sort of at the beginning of the thing said, you know, when we talk about, you know, maybe it's sort of lawyers and judges gone, wild that we get this, but I get a lot of cases that involve lawyers and judges that really haven't done anything wrong. Uh, they have they have simply got a client uh, or a litigant in the case of a judge that's upset with the outcome of the case uh, that they want part of their feedback. And I've seen more manipulation uh, recently. I'm I'm sort of ashamed to say, as a past president of the bar, I've seen more manipulation of the bar disciplinary purposes for the reasons of trying to sort of disgorge a fee that I think I ever saw when I served on one of those boards. And I wonder if I'm isolated in that, or if you, if you've also seen that.
0: Um, A huge number of calls that I get from potential clients are about conduct that they're unhappy with or an outcome that they're not as happy with as they could have been um, or a fee they found Not on the front end when they entered into the agreement with the lawyer, but on the back end not to be what they wanted. Um, I think sometimes it's very hard for clients to see how much work lawyers do. We don't talk to them that often during the course of the case, even if we're keeping. I mean, even if you're a really good lawyer and you're sending communications and you're sending the pleadings and you're talking to them. We still talk to our clients very little about their cases compared to the amount of time we spend on them. Um, So it's hard for them to appreciate the value that we give them. Um, One of the things I've learned as a legal malpractice attorney, and it's a hard thing and I struggle with it in my practice regularly, is by and I'm sure, Lester, you have as well. By the time somebody finds a legal malpractice attorney. They are so jaded and miserable about the way they've been treated, whether it was fair or unfair, that they're very hard to work with. Um, Clients. We see people at the worst point in their lives, something terrible has happened, something financially damaging has happened, they're under tremendous stress. And almost never is the judicial system going to satisfy them or make them happy. We're going to get them the best possible result. If we're a good lawyer, we're going to try and take care of what happened to them. But even the best clients with the best results have buyer's remorse.
3: I, I see that with med mal clients because I, I do a fair yeah. amount of medical malpractice. And, you know, the, 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 once the once people feel, I think, sort of betrayed by a professional, be it doctor, lawyer, dentist, accountant, whatever, uh, then they go get a lawyer to try to write that and they're, you know, they're, they're they feel snake bit, you know. Right.
0: Right. Um, it's, it's hard. I mean, it's, and it's hard to get them to trust you after they've already felt snake bit. But again, back to where I started, the vast majority of the calls I get are someone who's just unhappy. They're unhappy with how the case turned out. They wanted more. They thought it should have gone a different way. And the only person they can address at the end of it with any hope of any additional recovery or change is the lawyer or they're angry at the judge. Um, And, you know, it takes a long time to help somebody understand just because you didn't enjoy or appreciate the outcome, it didn't get you where you wanted to be, didn't mean your lawyer made a mistake. Didn't mean the judge made a mistake. I mean, I get phone calls from people who want to sue the opposing party attorney. I mean, so, you know, it's finding where a lawyer and of course the standard for legal malpractice in Georgia is a lawyer has made a mistake that but for the lawyer's misconduct or negligence or both, the case would have turned out differently. And unless we can demonstrate that and that there was a breach of a specific duty that was owed by that lawyer to that client, you don't really have a legal malpractice claim. You've got Maybe a grievance with the bar if it was handled improperly or if the fees not reasonable and Georgia fees are required to be reasonable. We have a bar rule that addresses that. You can go to the fee arbitration panel, but legal malpractice is a pretty high bar and many clients think they have it. Not that many really do. Yeah. In I'm, my experience.
2: I'm guessing that you probably handle a lot of telephone calls from
0: prospective clients that you have to tell them, sorry, that's not a case. Um The largest area and volume of calls would be domestic um, divorce cases, followed by criminal cases. And to successfully pursue a legal malpractice case in a criminal underlying action is extraordinarily difficult with a very high burden of proof. I haven't double checked it recently, but the last time I looked, you had to be able to prove that they would have been successful and would have prevailed in a criminal trial. Which means it pretty much has to have happened on appeal to be able to hit the standard of care. And and oh, I'm sorry, I thought I had turned that off. Um hit the standard of care. And very rarely do the, I mean, I've never handled a criminal legal malpractice case. Um and what I have determined about domestic legal malpractice cases, there are some. There are some circumstances where the injuries are compensable and you can bring those cases. Um But rarely is that the case, and those clients are extremely difficult to satisfy because of the underlying emotional nature of the case. Um, And so much of what happens in a divorce case isn't financially compensable. What the client calls and complains about wouldn't result in any recoverable damages, which is all we can offer the court. Mm
3: -hmm. You know, Robin and I were on the board of governors of the state bar uh, for long enough that... uh, We've seen uh, most ideas uh, about lawyers and lawyer governance not not floated just once, but two or three different times. You know they keep you know they keep coming back again and again and again. And uh, uh, one of those uh, has been uh, mandatory malpractice insurance, you know that has popped up from time to time. And uh, for the reasons that you uh, just mentioned, uh, I've, I've I've always been against it. I think that there are. I think it, in, you know, for uh, criminal cases and uh, domestic cases, cases uh, like that, there's not a lot of chance of a recovery. You know, against those folks, I think it increases the overhead cost. You know, for those lawyers uh, doing that kind of work, um, and I've, I've felt like that was. Uh, that that was a reason not to do it, and I'm, I'm I'm curious if you feel likewise or if you felt differently about that.
0: I feel very differently about that. Um,
3: Good, that's great. We got we got a case <laughs> to try.
0: Although although I will say I haven't really focused on, and you raise an excellent point about in the context of a domestic relations case or maybe a criminal case. And I may need to reevaluate my thinking a little bit there. But my position on insurance is, I think as a lawyer, you need it. You need the protection. We acquire insurance in so many areas of our life. We have home insurance. We have car insurance. In fact, in Georgia, you can't drive a car without minimum policy limits. But you can practice law and handle a case that is responsible for someone's livelihood, for injuries that they've sustained, And if you make a mistake, if you're uninsured and not particularly successful, there's no recourse for your clients. Um, Now, I do think perhaps there are some practice areas that should be omitted from a mandatory insurance requirement or have lower limits. But, you know, I think if you can't drive a car without insurance in Georgia, you ought to have insurance if you're going to practice law. And my
3: counterpoint would be, if you only have $25,000, you really don't have insurance. Well,
0: and my answer to that would be, as a legal malpractice attorney, one of the problems I see in our practice area is a lot of, and I'm going to use a term that seems a little pejorative, but I don't mean it that way, nuisance claims. Legal malpractice cases are extremely complicated to pursue, difficult, expensive. We call it the case within the case, and I'm sure we'll get into that later. But there are lots of low-value claims that if a lawyer had just minimum mandatory limits, I might could take on for a client and try to resolve it through settlement, even where litigation would be impractical. Most of those smaller cases come from really small firms, which don't have readily available funds to resolve them. So they fight hard because they don't want to be embarrassed locally. Um, They may not have liquidity. So a lot of these smaller claims where lower income people are impacted would be easier to pursue if there were some type of coverage available that wouldn't affect a law firm more directly than their premiums, for example. So that's my counterpoint. my,
2: My experience is with it, and and we've been dealing with this issue, as Lester says, for years. I can remember probably the first time I dealt with it with state bars, probably 2006 or seven or so. And I didn't know much about it. Um, I always take the position, I sleep at night because I have insurance. But yeah. if you if you ask a criminal defense attorney that, they would say, I sleep at night because I don't have it. It's just a flipped universe, which I had never really thought about. But remember... Um, very, I would say, famous criminal defense attorney who was a Board of Governors member, Dwight Thomas, got up and, and uh, at one of our big board meetings, talked about it. And he said, and, and at that point, we were even considering m- making it mandatory that you disclose to your client whether you have it. I remember. And he said, if I have to disclose to my client sitting in a jail cell that I have insurance I will be sued by that client. No ifs, ands, or buts. I will be sued. So every client I tell I have insurance, I will have a lawsuit. I've never, you know, i never looked at it from that point of view. But I think he knows what he's talking about, at least in the in the arena of representing an accused
3: person. Well, yeah, I think in the realm of, uh, uh, you know, in the realm of of the the, you know, certain areas having it, certain areas don't. I mean, I, I think um you, you know I, I i have i have a pretty broad practice in terms of of uh of of what i do uh you know from you know federal criminal defense cases state criminal defense cases medical malpractice car wrecks you know wh- lawyer stuff whatever and so uh it would be very difficult for me to you know, have a policy that just covered one area or or not the other. You know, the other thing, and I I hear what you're saying about, you know, firms not having, you know, like maybe smaller firms not having the money to resolve it or something like that. I think the claims are sort of proportional. If you see the claims that get brought against these silk stocking firms, they don't have the money to resolve resolve them because those are places where if you got to ask what the cost of legal representation is, you just need to go someplace else, you know, to begin with. And so the claims are so big that they can't do it. And with the small dollar claims that are insured, like car wreck claims, how many how many spats have I been in with State Farm, All State, Liberty Mutual, who don't want to pay a damn dime on, you, you know, cases that you, you, you know, you and I and Rob and all would characterize as sort of nuisance sort of claims. Uh, so it's it's. Uh, I mean, it's it's an interesting debate, and I mean, I I, I know how I feel, and I don't, uh, you know, it's not one of those things that I, uh, I, I I feel like I'm right and everybody else is wrong, but it's it's interesting because there are so many points and counterpoints I think to the whole thing.
0: Well, and and what you both raise very interesting points about those particular practice areas, because as I said before we started this discussion on this topic. Almost never would I take a case in those areas anyway. So they're not really the people who need protection or, and, You know, I had a former partner that we debated why we had liability insurance. He had thought we had liability insurance to protect him from liability. I thought we had liability insurance to protect our clients from our potentially inevitable mistakes. So we had a disagreement about why we were paying for it. I I feel like I get it so that if I make a mistake that I can't write a check for, I'm protecting my clients. Um, We're all human. Um, the odds are four out of, what is it, four out of five lawyers will be sued for legal malpractice during their career.
3: Maybe we need uninsured, uh, uninsured lawyer insurance, like we have uninsured motorist insurance, you know? where the- it's within the clients, you know, with, you know, and the, the lawyer could sell it like title insurance, you know, like they do on the, uh, uh, you know, it, you know real estate closings. You know, if you want, if you want to be insured, here's the extra, here's the premium, you know, for this thing. Right. So.
0: Hopefully more effectively than most title
2: insurance has
0: turned out to be. Um, I had had sent uh, Jenny
2: a little article that talking about Lester, to your point about the big firms, you know, we're not, we're all sole practitioners on this podcast right now, but big firms have really big cases. Like you say, if you have to ask how much it's going to cost you, you shouldn't be there, but um, there's this case down in Florida Dealing with an estate, which I understand is problematic in and of itself, but um, it's an $850 million estate that they say this lawyer uh, who's now at Nelson and Mullins um, messed up, um, not only messed up, but may have may have had some un- unethical um, preference over one uh, heir over the other. And, you know, $850 million, um. I've never had an $850 million case. I can't imagine the the pressure that must be like, but you're talking about Lloyd's of London at at that point if you have insurance for that.
0: Well, and, you know, with those quantities, is there any question that they have enough insurance? I don't know. I mean, that's such a huge, huge figure. Um, That case in particular, and we'll talk about this more later probably, but I read the, the email that you sent over to me, Robin, and to me, this is a conflict of interest case. Yeah. I mean, it You know, falls solidly. It looks like the law firm was probably handling the business of the company, representing the parents, representing the child who was running the business, and setting up estate planning for the parents all at the same time. And Too many hats, too many cooks, not enough kitchen um, there. But, and, and, you know, it's interesting. We were talking about small firms versus big firms. 70% of legal malpractice cases are brought against firms with between one and five lawyers. So we hear a lot about these big dollar cases because they get press, as so many things do these days and with social media. But the vast majority of claims are against much, much smaller firms.
3: Yeah, but but you know, like you know, Coca Cola and Porsche and all—they're—they're they're never going to sue a law firm. They're just gonna—they're going to fire them and go someplace else, and that's that's worse. And I I, I sort of cringe sometimes when that statistic comes up because a there are far more solo small firms in the United States than there are you know and lawyers that practice in that setting. So there's a there's a larger demographic group, and second, it sort of implies to some people, or they take that and try to argue from that. Oh, well, you know, a, a bigger firm is going to be better, uh, you know, because all these small firms get sued for malpractice. And I I, I just, I think that's sort of a urban legend too.
0: Well, you know, I don't know that it's an urban legend. I think it's borne out in my practice by what comes across my desk. But what I would say is There's an awful lot of malpractice that goes undiscovered because large firms have the resources to address claims in ways that other firms don't. They have other choices. Mm -hmm. Um, And they also frequently have, as you say, a real vested interest in sorting things out voluntarily with clients to keep them when they make a mistake in one area and they've got all this business in another area. So the statistic is flawed from that perspective for sure. But the number of calls that I get and I'm a small practitioner. Nobody's going to let me. I won't say that it is less likely that somebody will call me to handle a claim against King and Spalding or Nelson Mullins or a large firm. It's not impossible, and my firm could do it, and certainly I could associate other lawyers to help me. But I hear more often than not about smaller firm claims for those same reasons. Um, well, Jenny, we we
2: uh, kind of that kind of segues into what I some questions I wanted to ask you about you had given a a continuing education, continuing legal education presentation at at Lawyers Club not too long ago that was uh, fantastic, Uh, and it was titled Stuff That'll Get You in Trouble, Considerations from the Trenches, and I kind of like to talk a little bit about that. Uh, We hope a lot of lay folks are listening to this and, uh, and lawyers too, but I kind of wanted to split it in between duties. Let's talk a little bit about duties you owe to a client. A lawyer owes to a client. You mentioned uh, no conflict of interest. Uh, and then, then let, let's talk a little bit about things a lawyer should not do, period. So can you, can you talk a little bit about what, what duties when a client comes into a lawyer's office and you reach an agreement on how to proceed, you're going to represent a client now in whatever kind of case. or or situation what duties does the lawyer owe to that client oh there's so many and the Uh, bar rules there's a lot fill them out what are the biggies
0: well I mean I would and I'll kind of take it through the representation the duties that apply at various points in time but what clients need to know and what lawyers need to remember is that we owe a fiduciary duty to our clients and what that means is If I am representing you in a case, it's my responsibility to put your interest ahead of my own interests every time. Um, Hard for clients to understand um, because they always assume that we're putting ourselves first. And I think this is a misconception that many people, lay people have about lawyers is that we put ourselves first. We put ourselves ahead of our clients and we don't. We're required to put our clients' interests ahead of our own. Um, So we have this duty, and I think it's important that we educate our clients about that duty. The other duty that we have, the really important one, and it gets talked about a lot, is the attorney-client privilege. We have a duty to keep our clients' communications confidential unless we've been authorized by the client to talk about them or you know to use them for the client's benefit in litigation. So those are two really big duties that I think are little understood by lay people um, that you can come and talk to me and tell me anything. Now, the one thing that clients do need to know about it is if you come and tell me anything, I can't put you on the stand and let you testify later if you want to lie. Um, I can't repeat what you've said unless you're planning a crime or you're going to commit a crime um, or there's a crime ongoing in progress. It's pretty much the crime fraud exception. But, you know, I can't be aware that you're going to lie and put you on the stand in court and lie. But other than that circumstance, there's literally no reason not to tell your law- lawyer the truth. We uh, can't suborn perjury of our own. Crime. Correct. We have to make sure that the testimony what we put forth is as accurate as it can be to our understanding. Um. So, you know, those are important. We have a duty to charge our clients a reasonable fee. Um, which is appropriate and tailored to the service that we've rendered and our expertise. We have a duty to communicate with our clients, to advise them about what's going on in their case, to manage the case consistent with their needs and expectations. Um,
2: Well, let me, let me talk about um, that first one you said about putting the client first. And um, I agree that that, we should do that. And we're required to do that. I I do all contingency fee work. I, I never bill an hour. Um, so I've always felt that by virtue of a contingency fee, meaning I only get paid if I win for my client. I, I say we're in the same boat. Now, I haven't been through a horrible nightmare of a personal injury my client has. But as far as money, the, the better we do, the better I do, the better the client does. What, what's
0: yes. your thoughts about a contingency fee? I, I agree. There are some hybrid free structures that can generate some conflictual issues. But generally, as a plaintiff's lawyer who is invested in the client in the case with the client, you sink or swim together. Um you're much less likely to have those kinds of issues arise. Cause your their success and your success is tied directly. Um and your responsibility is to get the best result for them, which in turn should be the best result for you if you've structured your fee correctly.
3: So, and w- with the fees, uh, again, one of the things I'm I'm, I'm seeing a lot of, and uh, I, g- I guess I've had similar sort of issues come up, you know, in my practice, but particularly with like uh, criminal practice. Uh, you know, when I when I quote a fee in a criminal. In criminal practice, it's usually a non-refundable retainer. So that's a minimum fee it's owed to me, you know, regardless if it goes over that. If I have to go to the U.S. Supreme Court or whatever, you know, there's more, uh, there's more, um, uh, more, uh, I, I might bill more or be able to, it's in my fee contract to ask for more than that. But I, I, I've seen, and I've represented a lot of lawyers where, uh, you know, the client, you know, they, they, they say they're innocent. They want to go to trial. It's going to be a big, uh, a big trial. They quote exactly like I do, you know, a minimum, minimum retainer, minimum fee. Uh, and then either the lawyer and this happens a lot gets a really good deal for them, you know, in a a plea bargain and they take it or Uh, The lawyer, uh, you you know, later as the evidence comes rolling in, they all of a sudden decide their case is not they're innocent. They're not as pure, pure as the driven snow when they see what evidence the other side has and they decide to take a plea. And then they they say, oh, well, you know, that was an exorbitant fee that you charged me. And, and, And frankly, most of the time that I see that it's for a really, really great result. That probably nobody else you know would have gotten Uh, and you know i I was going to ask you to talk about some of the other things that go into those fees like the fact you're conflicted out you can't represent anybody else once you're once you're in on that and the fact that like in a criminal case it's very difficult to get out uh you know to get to get the court to let you out if you've gotten you know if you've gotten a fee prior to that time and And maybe just talk a little bit about why the amount of time expended on that case is is not really a, a a sort of definitive or objective measure of whether the fee was reasonable or not.
0: So a fee has to be reasonable under the bar rules, but there are a variety of components that go into that. Um, and And I will say. I have not given um, criminal fees a whole lot of consideration in my practice because they just don't come up. I don't have those kinds of cases. People don't People call me because they're not happy with a criminal lawyer. No one's ever called me because they were unhappy with what a criminal lawyer charged them. The um, fee has to be reasonable. What goes into making a fee reasonable is the, the level of experience and expertise. Um, that an attorney has, I would say in a criminal case the the connectivity in the community that a lawyer has is probably part of it, although I don't know that the bar rules address that. But, you know, knowing the right people, having the right relationships is so important in a criminal case. Um, The fact that you're precluded from taking other cases during the time frame that you're representing that particular client, you may have to give up other business um, specifically related to that crime or other crimes. That you could be representing people for, I mean, a fee is not strictly it's x amount per hour for this many hours, and this is how much it costs. I think the criminal world is very different because it's almost, you know, value billing maybe. when you get a really good result and you've quoted a flat fee up front, um and you're able to achieve the result sooner you know, your reputation, your personality, your experience, your expertise, all go into generating that result. And those are intangibles that can support the reasonableness of that fee. Does that address your question?
3: Yeah, that, that, I think it does. I'm, and and when you talk about personality and ability, and we were talking about my friend and mentor, Bobby Lee Cook, earlier, I'm always reminded of the story uh, uh, where uh, my friend, Buddy Darden, and a another guy went to see him after he'd been ill. And they said, he said, Oh, I've taken in a new case. And, uh, you know, it's uh, this man, you know, uh, caught his wife with another man and, uh, took his golf driver and almost killed him and said, uh, he's, he's hired me. He's paid me a very substantial fee, but he said, you know, he was concerned about my health too. And he kept asking me during my illness, you know, what, uh, what it was, you know, Uh, how I was feeling and you know how my doctor's visits were going and finally I said are you concerned about what's going to happen to your case if I die and he said well yeah I I am kind of concerned about that thinking about connectivity and whatnot Bobby Lee says if I die you're going to the damn penitentiary so (laughs) uh, I think that all does count for something in the so pray for me you know
0: yes that's funny not all lawyers can take the same facts and communicate them the same way to the same people. That's right.
2: Um, well, for sure. And, and, for example, with Lester, uh, if he takes a case in Bartow County, he, he knows everybody in that courthouse. Right. Uh, and knowing the prosecutor, knowing the judge, um, as Governor Barnes would say, that's way better than writing one of those legal briefs. Yeah. Well, but it's somehow like that
0: being in a position to have the dialogue with people you have an existing relationship with. is just very different. And and that has a value. Um, Harder to quantify, but it clearly has value.
2: You mentioned uh, duty to communicate with the client that that seems to make sense. But how do you define that or quantify it? How do you say this was appropriate? Are you talking about you have to do it once a week, once a month, once a year, or when things come up, you know, how, how's a lawyer supposed to know what's adequate? There's some
0: rules that talk about what you have to communicate about and there are various things you have to communicate about clearly. But this is one of those. There's the rule and what you should do. And I don't really talk about what the rule says. I talk about what you should do. And when I think about whether or not I'm communicating with a client often and regularly enough, I think about my mother and if my mother had a case. And somebody was handling that case for my mother, would she feel like, and this is not an enforceable standard and it doesn't hold up in a court of law. This is a best practices, not a what you'll have to do. But I think about, am I communicating with my client enough so that my mother wouldn't be nervous? Because my mother is nervous and she worries and she worries about everything and she wants people to talk to her and she wants people to tell her about what's going on. So when I think about, have I talked to client A often enough? If this was my mother, would she feel satisfied with what I've communicated? Um we call it the practice of law. It's not a science. There, you know, there are some areas where there are defined answers. This is one where they're not. You have a duty to keep a client reasonably informed about what's going on in their case so that they're in a position to make appropriate decisions. Um What I do is if anything happens in a case, I send a letter to a client. Or in this day and age, I'm doing a whole lot less letters and a lot more email. Just touching base, you know, getting ready to do depositions. Depositions just came in. We're doing discovery. It's time to start thinking about getting ready for trial. Read this article about how to testify at a trial. You know, you need... You know, you have to think of your clients as friends that you're keeping updated. You know, if this happened in my life, I would call my friend and tell them um, they're not your friends, they're your clients. But that level of attention that you give to the people that matter to you in your personal life is the same level of attention you should be giving to the people that you represent because you matter in their lives like your personal connections do to yours, Um which seems counterintuitive because it's a business relationship. I would say the two, well, there are three serious areas for lawyers, serious, dangerous, but the two biggest areas that cause complaints, call legal, cause legal malpractice, and call grievances are one, and no one should ever do this steal from your clients, take your clients' money, appropriate your clients' money, and then failing to communicate. Um, the easiest way to get a bar agreement is to not keep a client updated, um, not tell a client what's going on in their case, not be available. I mean, don't be available when they call. Um, you know, if you handle your communications with your clients, you can prevent a ton of complaints. And from a, and and as a client, you're entitled to call your attorney, get a return phone call. Not that day, not the next day. It'll depend on the size of the firm, what the lawyer's doing, if they're in court. But you are entitled to a phone call back in a reasonable time period letting you know what's going on in your case. Now, that phone call may not come from the lawyer. It may come from somebody in the lawyer's office. It may come from paralegal. It may come from an administrative assistant. But, you know, you should be able to reach out to your lawyer through email or phone calls and get a response. And when, you know, is soon enough is a question that arises from that relationship and what's going on in that office. But, you know, clients, I get people who call me and say, I've called, I've called, I've called, I've emailed, I've called, I've called, I've emailed. It's been eight months and I haven't heard from my lawyer. Okay, that's too long. Mm -hmm. You know, so this is one of those where you really have to try and hit a higher than required standard for your own protection and to have a quality relationship with your client and your client is, you know, for a plaintiff's lawyer in particular, you and the client are sitting in the same boat, you need to be rowing together and part of rowing with that client is making sure the client knows what you need. Um, I think lawyers have a tendency We all do. And I'm certainly not innocent of this. We're so head down in the work, the minutia, the law, the discovery, the preparing for trial that we forget there's a person out there spinning. Um, And I've had occasion to think about it recently because I have a family member that's involved in litigation. They're being represented by two friends of mine. And I get phone calls about what's not going on in those cases. And I have to switch hats and be compassionate to my family member um, and then call the lawyer and say, hey, you need to call them. They're really stressed out about this. They're really stressed out about that. And we've done it for so long. We've been to court so many times. We forget how terrifying a hearing is or a deposition. Um, This particular family member was supposed to have a hearing. It's been reset five or six times. It's very Matter of fact, at the lawyer's office, so she's not getting phone calls, but for seven days before each scheduled hearing, she's planning what to wear, what should she do for her makeup? How's she gonna get there? You know, should she do this? Should she wear this jewelry? I mean, it is consuming all of her time and that lawyer has not given a thought. And this is not a criticism of the lawyer. They're doing the work. Their nose to the grindstone. They're moving it forward. But what'll get the complaint is that cl- unhappy panicked client who goes to court and doesn't understand something ha- that happened because there wasn't enough communication up front. Um, and it's hard for us to remember, they clients don't, even sophisticated clients who have been to court time after time after time, still go through that, I call it stage fright, preparation, anxiety, And the only person who can effectively hold their hand through that is their lawyer. I mean, a paralegal can help, but they need to hear from you. They need to know what's going on.
3: Yeah, You know, one of the things I I sort of changed my system years ago where I had um, and and it was when my kids were small and, uh, you know, there's no talk about panic. There's no panic like a sick kid, you know, when you you're trying to get to call the pediatrician, you know, and everything else and. And uh, so you know, it suddenly dawned on me that, you know, you you don't always get the pediatrician, but they've got somebody there to, to talk to you, to find out what's going on, tell you to come in. No, we're gonna call in prescription, no, we're gonna do whatever. And I've used that example with clients and I actually have my paralegal sit in an initial meeting and I say, I'm not gonna always be available. You've hired me because I go to court. So I'm in court, you know, I'm taking depositions, I'm I'm doing all these things. If you were having surgery tomorrow and you had a question for your surgeon and he picked up the phone, you would probably think, I wish you were doing more surgery instead of sitting around waiting for the phone to ring with me. And it's been amazing to me because I, I, you know, I, we don't assign cases to lawyers. We sign them to paralegals and they help us circulate them. And over time, the client becomes such in such communication with the paralegal that like, we'll go to a mediation and... Uh, you know the mediator will come in with a really good you know offer that's very tempting instead of asking me what they think about it they'll turn to my paralegal and say what do you, what, what do you think about it robin what do you, what do you think about it Dee, Dee?" because they've sort of built that that trust with them you know going forward that's the person they call when they've got a question and if it's something you know we we have clients about every week there's at least four or five clients you know it's they, they. You need to talk to them now. They've got this question I couldn't answer or whatever else. But uh, I think it makes for uh, n- not just a happier client, but a much better relationship. Uh, than, and the kind that uh, gets you more business, too, frankly.
2: Yeah. Right. I'm the same way I rely on my paralegal who's been with me for 25 years now, Nikki Wilson. And so she has that relationship with my clients as well but also it's been interesting because she'll develop that relationship with opposing counsel. And, and if I have something that has to be done, I'll, you know, I'll say to the opposing counsel, just let, give it to Nikki, let Nikki know. And had one guy, a defense attorney at Drew Eccles said, you no, know, everybody knows Nikki. I wish I had a Nikki. I <laughs> well,
3: try to hire Nikki away from you too.
0: Be careful. <laughs> and
3: that's the other thing. And, and, you know, I've got two paralegals that have been with me 25 and 26 years. And, and, you know, to me, that's one of the greatest uh, malpractice prevention things you can do is invest in your staff uh, and, and you know, make them happy uh, where they, they want to help you, you know, yeah. as you go along.
2: Totally agree. Another thing I do, you're talking about communication, Jenny, and I don't know if this is typical for most lawyers, but any document generated in my file, they get a copy of it. Every pleading, every letter everything that that occurs in their file so i tell them at the end of the case they will have a complete copy of my file there's it's the exact same Um, now we have developed a big red stamp that we put on some documents that says for your information only no action required because if you don't do that they'll call about what does this answer mean what is this request for production you know so but we do that but they have a complete you know there's there's no um document
0: in my file that they don't have. Well, that's a very important part of communication. Um, You know, I said, send a letter, send an email. I now send things almost exclusively through email because they get it faster. I know they get it. And I can do a short note that says, you don't need to call me. You don't need to. But if we do it, if we get it, if we file it, you send it to the client because it's the client's case and they're entitled to see those communications. Which brings me to my favorite part of talking about legal malpractices. The file. Lawyers um, should keep a very good file. My former partner used to joke that um, if it ain't in writing, it didn't happen. So lawyers really need to keep a good file. And part of keeping a good file is communicating everything that happens to the client, sending it to the client, having evidence in the file that you send it to the client, um, evidence in the file that you communicate with your client, even for people. And Robin's going to make an unhappy face when I say this, but even people who do primarily contingency fee work. Should do some kind of an hourly calendar billing type system. I know you're not going to no, bill no. for it and you're not no, going to no. keep it. I know. But as an attorney who who's oh. lawyers, as an attorney who occasionally defends lawyers, the best written record all of what happened in a case often is the billing records. I mean, many, many lawyers have been saved I from heard. malpractice by what they put in their billing records. I get that. I understand that. I know that's
2: not going to occur for me because one of the reasons I became a plans attorney, so I don't ever have to fill another hour. I can't. What? Well, I, I can't stand that. So, well,
0: but you can keep calendars that are less formal. You know, did well, I've this? Got, I've got, did I've got, that. got a, a case management software, so, and and it can be fill, fill the stuff, yeah. It'll fill that gap for a lot of people, but many lawyers underestimate how important those type of records can be when a claim comes up or a grievance comes up. Because here's the thing about clients and here's the thing about lawyers. Memories are imperfect. And I may have talked to a client three times and they remember one out of three phone calls. But if I jot down, talk to client, talk to client, talk to client. I've got a record that I did it and I'll say, look, I wrote it on my calendar. And sometimes you can jog their memory. Um, And when they come in my office, I'm like, well, you know, you said you only talked to them one time, but we've got these records here that, you know, are they saying that three years ago they were lying about talking to you before they, you knew that they knew anybody knew there was going to be a problem. So the file is important. The file is important for the client. The file is important for the lawyer and the file is important for effectively handling the client's case. So there are a whole lot of reasons to pay attention
3: to it. Yeah, that's that's one, one of the reasons, too. I'm I'm going to kind of dissent from or I have a different practice, I'll say, from what Robin has talked about, about, you know, sending every piece of paper in the files of the client, because I, I think I may have tried to do that at one time and it was so anxiety generating, you know, uh, that uh, uh, you, you know, you've been trying to send, a, you know, set a deposition and, you know, here comes a deposition notice and, uh, you, you know, you know, it's not going to happen because they've just sent it because they don't want the discovery period to close. And then the client's calling you, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be out of the country that day. I can't, you know, I can't be there or, you know, what is this? What is that? That are things that are, you know, sort of routine. I found it to be sort of like, uh, you know, a doctor that's doing surgery, you know, reporting that the client's believe the patient's bleeding. You know, yeah, they are, but it's it's not really, it's not a problem. It's something that's expected, and so I, I don't I don't do that uh, as much. But of course, I, you know, we do with significant, you know, things that significant things that happen.
0: Well, and I, and I don't know that every step of rescheduling or scheduling a deposition has to go to the client, but. The gist of the activity as it's happening keeps them informed and connected. And again, happy clients who are communicated with don't file grievances or lawsuits. Unhappy clients who don't feel communicated with file grievances and file lawsuits. So it's just, um, those are the phone calls you get. But um, I, I hear you and you're absolutely right. A lot of lawyers have developed a practice. If I get it, I just drop it in the mail and send it. I think if you don't send a little communication with it, um, and I had developed, I'm not doing as well with it now as I used to, a little series of blurbs that I would just p- pull and throw into an email. You know, this is not going to happen that day. This is us getting it sorted out so that you send it, but you don't, as Robin said, and you have to think about provoke the phone call with them upset, concerned, and distraught. So there's a balance between just sending it all and sending it with a bit of an explanation so they know it's informational. I love the stamp idea, Robin. Um, you know, informational only, no action required. No action we'll let no you know. Yeah. yeah, I
3: think that. I think the other thing that I got out of that, like, so with a deposition, as you all know, you know, like scheduling a deposition can be, you know, it can get set three or four times, you know, before that happens, and uh, so you know, the client doesn't, you know, if if you send a client something like that, I think I, I think I probably did it one one time long long ago in my career. You know, and so then it's like, oh, they they don't want to they don't want to give this deposition. You know, this is the reason they don't want to give this deposition is this. And I, I think I think they're trying to hide this person and that person. And so you, you kind of know all that's not going on. And even if, if you know, even if you send a blurb with it, you know, at some point, uh, you know, I think, you know, yeah. there's there, there's a balance to be struck there with how that how that plays out. Yeah.
2: Uh, good point. Jenny, let's talk a little bit about legal malpractice lawsuits. You, you do a good bit of legal malpractice lawsuits where you're uh representing a, a former client of a lawyer and suing that lawyer and/or his or her law firm for negligence. Um, and you mentioned early in the conversation about a suit within a suit. So Talk a little bit about that. What does that mean, a suit within a suit? And um, what makes why why does that make legal malpractice cases seemingly pretty difficult?
0: Well. I'm gonna lit- talk about a litigation example because the bulk of my work rises from litigation. And it's interesting because Robin, you do contingency fee personal injury work and Lester, you said you do a good bit of med mal. And those are both areas that generate an awful lot of claims. Um, in order to successfully prevail in a legal malpractice case in Georgia, um, it's different in other states, you have to be able to prove that you owed a duty that the client has to prove that a duty was owed to them by the attorney. At, at first, you got to prove that there's an attorney-client relationship. So you have to have agreed to represent the client. The client has to have agreed to be represented by you. So you've got that relationship. A phone call doesn't give a basis. Um, a web page doesn't give a basis, and that's all very complicated and can be discussed a lot. But you have agreed to represent the client. They've re- agreed to be represented by you, and there are terms that govern that relationship. From that point forward, you owed a duty to the client as the attorney, and then you failed to discharge that duty within the confines of the law. And the law, as it's defined for the purposes of legal malpractice, is that the law has to be clear and well-established. So if there's a dispute as to the law or as to what should have been done in a case, it's not clear and well-established, and failing to do it is not a breach, and we call it the standard of care. The standard of care requires that a reasonable lawyer acting in an area would have done X. So to bring a legal malpractice case, we have to prove that there was a duty that was owed. The duty was breached. That as a result of that breach of duty, and then this is called proximate cause, that the breach proximately caused an injury to the client. So you've got to have a duty um, that's been breached. And that breach led clearly to an injury and to a damage So if you've got all of that, you've got a legal malpractice case arising from that breach of the standard of care, which has resulted in damages. But in order to prove in, for example, a medical malpractice case or in a personal injury case, what the impact of that breach of duty is, we would have to litigate the underlying either medical malpractice case personal injury case and prove that but for what that lawyer did wrong, the breach of duty that that lawyer caused, that the case would have turned out this way, and then what the damages arising from the injury in the underlying case would have been, because that's what the damages are in the legal malpractice case. And then we have the additional component of proving that the damages that would have been awarded in either the personal injury case or the medical malpractice case, had it been handled correctly, would have been collectible and in what amount against the underlying defendant. And by underlying defendant, I mean the driver of the car that caused the accident, the nurse or the doctor that caused the malpractice. So we've got to prove That there was an actionable underlying case, that in the absence of the mistake made by the lawyer, the case would have turned out this way, that the damages would have been this much and that those damages would have been collectible against the person who caused the harm, Um, which means we get into proof of insurance, how much insurance was available. So let's say we are able to prove successfully that the underlying case was worth $3 million. But if there's only $2 million in insurance and we have to prove the insurance and that it would have been collectible and the premiums were paid and it was available to settle the claim, we would then have to bring in evidence that that additional million would have been collectible through personal assets of the person who caused the harm. So a legal malpractice case is a case within the case because we have to handle the whole case that the first lawyer mishandled successfully and then we have to handle the whole legal malpractice case against the lawyer. Now, although we have to prove that the damages that would have been awarded in the original case are collectible, we are not permitted to discuss the insurance of the lawyer or the financial circumstances of the lawyer, but they would be responsible for the damages that would have been collected, less what was collected, if that makes sense. From the underlying case, it
2: sounds, it sounds very complicated. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, but basically, if you if you had a if you had two cars collide at a traffic uh, light, both say they've got the green light, one of the lawyers uh, for one of the one of the folks doesn't file the lawsuit within the statute of limitations, misses it, uh, then you try the car wreck case, and if you win the car wreck case, and there's enough insurance or other assets to solve it. Then, then, you, then you have to try the case that shows he missed the statute of limitations.
0: That, that's exactly right. So that's why we call it the case within the case, because we have to do what the first lawyer should have done, and then we have to do what's basically the equivalent of a medical malpractice case against the lawyer.
2: Before, uh, um, uh, if the underlying case is a med mal, let's take that example, and you believe the medical malpractice lawyer messed up, committed negligence. And you've got to prove they would have won the MedMal case. That seems to me to be almost impossible because I don't know how you would ever be able to prove a jury would return a verdict for the plaintiff in a MedMal case in Georgia. That, that just seems insurmountable to me.
3: But you but, be pretty much try it. You, but, you try that case without them knowing what I it know,
0: is. I but dang, that seems really tough. Those are my favorite kind, med mal and legal mal. And that's really a case within a case within a case within a case. But I will say a med med mal case in Georgia, and this is not a positive comment for lawyers, but um, whereas people love their doctors, people love their doctors, people cannot intellectually or instinctively accept that their doctors are fallible because then it becomes impossible to trust them to handle their medical care they don't have the same issues with lawyers. So I do think that there is a concern that when you try a med mal case against the legal malpractice case in Georgia, you have a slight edge because people are not predisposed to feel as strongly and as connected to their lawyers. So in More answer- More
2: likely dependent on the lawyer. That right.
0: You know, I, the lawyer's not keeping me alive. Um, the lawyer's earning money off of something that happened to me. And I do feel like, Lester, that we get a little bit of an advantage when we try a med mal against a lawyer as opposed to trying a med mal against a doctor.
3: Yeah, that's probably true. And you know, I I I think it's because the doctors wear white coats. I'm thinking about getting a white coat, (laughs) you know, with my name and the scales of justice on the left front pocket to wear around the office. So uh, I
0: I wish it was the coat, but I think it's kind of the (laughs) fact that they literally hold our lives in their hands, not financially, physically. Um, It's just a distinction people react to viscerally in a very different way.
2: In your experience, you've been practicing law for 30-something years now. Um, Not not that I mean to point that out, but you have... You're slightly older than me. (laughs) slightly, Slightly. Slightly. But you have a vast experience. In this kind of lawyer, ethical, negligence world, can you tell us the craziest thing you've ever
0: seen a lawyer do? I really wish that I could because (laughs) I have some absolute doozies. Unfortunately, most of the things I know about that are fascinating don't ever see the light of day.
2: That's, I guess when you represent a lawyer, you're defending a lawyer in front of the bar. I guess that's your job is to make sure it doesn't see the light of day.
0: Um, But there are, you know, lawyers are human. Um, And unfortunately, they are subject to all the same foibles as everybody else. And they take leave of their senses like other people do sometimes. But I would say I think that the perception in society that lawyers are Not as trustworthy. You know, the joke about lawyers being liars, it's just so untrue. So, most lawyers are ethical to a fault, honest to a fault, loyal to a fault, want to help their clients. And it's unfortunate that society doesn't get to see that. They hear about the bad apples, they hear about the folks who do the things they shouldn't do, Um, they hear about the lawyers who engage in inappropriate relationships with clients. but most lawyers are good people doing good work for them. I, I, I totally agree with you.
2: And, um, but, but the good lawyers who do all the right things for the right reasons and, and what you're saying, they don't write a lot of articles about it. No, them.
0: it's not nearly as interesting as the lawyers who are engaging in shenanigans, for lack of a better word. Right. Talking about
2: shenanigans, um, I want to talk a little, little bit about bar complaints. Um, I know you represent sometimes lawyers who have a bar complaint filed against them um, in your put on your defensive lawyer's hat. Um, talk, talk to us a little bit about that. Would you ever recommend to a client that they file a bar complaint? Is, are, has that system work? Is it, is it fast? Is it worthy? Does it give the client's a
0: sense of justice. What's your opinion about that? So it depends. If a client comes to me wanting to file a grievance against a lawyer and there's no legal malpractice case at issue, my opinion is different than if I'm going to be representing the client in a legal malpractice case. Um, and my position varies on whether or not you should file it, depending on whether or not you're a client I'm pursuing damages for or you're a client who's trying to right a wrong or wants an emotional resolution. Um, if I'm representing a client in a legal malpractice case, my advice is almost always not to file agreements. I find that the filing of a grievance distracts the attorney, draws assets that are potentially collectible away from the case, and the lawyers fight to save the license um, in fear, interferes with our ability to settle the case. Um, now that having been said, sometimes the conduct by the lawyer is so egregious, ongoing, or inappropriate that you have to do it. You just can't, I mean, can't in good conscience allow somebody else to fall into the same trap that your client has fallen into. Um, and that's my advice to clients. Sometimes they want to file them anyway, and we will, if you want to file a grievance, we'll file a grievance. Um, if a client comes to me because they want to file a grievance, I will help them with that. Um, You just have to balance whether or not you want to redirect assets from the lawyer and attention, you know, and potentially make the lawyer angry. And then there's also the if we file a grievance and we get the lawyer disbarred, how are we going to collect our damages? you hope that the conduct of the lawyer is not conduct that needs to be addressed so that you can make decisions that are financially appropriate for your client. But the grievance process is kind of slow. I mean, it takes a while and it takes a while for very good reason, because when you file a grievance, you're potentially seeking to have somebody sanctioned for conduct within the confines of licensure, which they have to have to earn a living. So Mm -hmm. due process has to be afforded. We make a complaint, um, That's then sent to the lawyer. The lawyer has some period of time to respond. Frequently extensions are given for good reasons so that the lawyer can gather the data. The client then has an opportunity to respond, and then it goes through a bar committee who decides if there's sufficient evidence to determine that it should move forward through an investigative stage and ultimately to a special master. Um, I do think that there can be resolution. There's private discipline. There's public discipline. There are all different kinds of levels of discipline. it's a complex process. It can be therapeutic for clients. Um, and sometimes, you know, as a lawyer, I see something and we have to report it. I mean, not that we're legally required to record it in Georgia because we're not a mandatory reporting state, but things that you can't let in good conscience continue while you're trying to resolve it for your client. And those are conversations you have to have. Um You know, and sometimes those can create conflicts of interest where you as a lawyer feel like it has to be reported, but you're concerned about the impact that it may have on your client's case. And you have to have those conversations. Um, And I frequently represent lawyers who've had grievances filed against them. We get the information from the bar. We evaluate it. We determine what the applicable rules are. We provide evidence and then try to explain it. Um, oftentimes I've had clients, we've asked for permission to talk. We've talked to the bar and gotten permission to go back and talk to the client and try and find a way to resolve or make the client satisfied or to resolve the issues that arose to mitigate harm. So yeah,
3: the, um, I, I, I had a case where a basically a, a, a real estate lawyer uh, did not pay off the mortgage, but kept the, corpus of the money and uh was making periodic payments for a time and the 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 never client didn't realize that the mortgage had not been paid off and uh given the slowness of the uh other options that were available i filed a equity action to disgorge him on the constructive trust and uh if, if he didn't pay you know, you've got so many days to do this. If you don't pay, hold you in contempt, and uh, it worked pretty well. I'm not sure I've seen a lot of, uh, of appellate decisions uh, in, along those lines, but uh, uh, there are some remedies like that. I think that you, you know, pr- particularly where the lawyers stolen money. I mean, that, that, right. let's just call it what it is: stolen the money. uh, uh you, know, you know, the people who do that which in my opinion is just like the lowest of blow uh, but the people who do that they they always say well I was going to put it back as if you know you know the, the bank robber you know when the police pull him over you know I was going to pay it back you know <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but,
0: it was uh, a short-term
2: loan short-term, bar short-term
1: loan there's, that's right That's right.
2: Supreme Court opinion this a lawyer this week I don't know if y'all saw it they came out this week um where basically stole the money, said exactly what you said, Lester. He said, Oh, I, I did take it out of the escrow account and they, it, I hadn't earned the fee, but I was going to put it back, you know. Um, and, it, and it started out to be like just a few thousand dollars. And The bar gets involved, starts looking at it. It was more like $150,000 that he's just been stealing from the client, which, you know, we were shaking our heads. The listeners can't see us shaking our heads, but as soon as Lester gave the facts, Jenny and I are like, Oh, no, very bad, very bad. Vigorous head shaking and frowning. <laughs> yes, frowning, and that's very bad. Um, let me let me switch gears here um, and ask you about your work with the Georgia High School Mock Trial. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that that is? And I know it's near and dear to your heart. You've been coaching this team in Duluth, and I hear about all the wonderful kids that you've got uh, and how proud you are of them. But that's quite a quite a thing that you have volunteered hundreds and hundreds of hours. Um tell, tell us what it is and, and what
0: you do. Well, I got started probably Uh, 2010 Richard Harris is one of my former partners who as of this week is the head of the Georgia Bar Bar Mock Trial Program following Michael Nixon's retirement after a long and illustrious run Um, Richard started coaching at Norcross High and asked me to help him with his witness prep his first year and I did and I loved it and I love the kids and it's unfortunately the nature of what I do is profoundly negative Um, I'm representing clients who've had lawyers mishandle cases for them. They're very unhappy. It's just an unhappy practice. I love it, and I love the ethics of it, but it is not a joyful activity. Um, Working with the mock trial kids is a joyful activity. Um, So I got involved with the program in 2010, started coaching at Norcross, coached there for three or four years with Richard, and then my children were going to attend Duluth High School, and I wanted to lower my involvement. So I was going to move over to Duluth and work in their very well-established program the year before my son started school. Went out there, all of their teacher coaches retired, and their two attorney coaches moved to Alabama. And I became the Duluth High School mock trial program with a couple of teachers who had never done it. And it is kind of the love of my life. I go twice a week, usually on Tuesdays and Thursdays, for two hours right after school so the kids don't have to be unless I'm in court or have other commitments, but so they don't have to leave and come back so that um, commuting is not an issue for disadvantaged students and teach them how to try a case. Um, We get a sample case that's prepared by the Georgia Bar um, and we get it in the middle of the fall We spend the first part of the year preparing the students to be lawyers. And uh, you put quote marks up for that because obviously they're just high school students. And um, then we try the cases in January and February of the year. And it's a competitive process. Georgia has one of the best programs in the country. We have the most national championships of anybody else in the program. And my kids at Duluth do a fantastic job. But I start with freshmen who are little bitty tiny babies. And I teach them how to cross-examine and direct-examine. And my program has Evolved over the time so that now I have a curriculum that I've developed that the older students teach to the younger students um, on how to cross examine and direct examine. And we've gone from PowerPoint slides because I'm a dinosaur, and they're now doing Google slides because they're young and hip, and I get to learn about technology. But these kids take either a civil case or a criminal case, we alternate years and prepare it and try it. And they're amazing. They are amazing. They are fantastic. I've got, at this point, I think four kids that started with me as freshmen who are on their way to law school, like in the next year.
3: That's
0: good. So I've been doing it, but I've been doing it over 10 years. Um, But it has wonderful opportunities for attorneys that are not particularly well advertised in Georgia. If you choose to be a coach, you get a certain number of CLE hours. You get credit for CLE. Um, You can evaluate rounds and get credit for CLE. You can get some professionalism and trial credits. But what I love about mock trial is I'm a trial lawyer. I love going to court. I love evidence. I love thinking about how to get evidence in. And I don't ever get to go to court because good good lawyers settle most of their cases, um, especially if they have good lawyers on the other side. And in my area of of practice, it's a very small bar. We know each other well. Most of the time, we can sort things out. So I don't get to go to court nearly as often as I would like. I relearn evidence every six months with these kids. So it keeps you fresh, it keeps you educated, and it's just so much fun to teach younger lawyers about the law and what it can do and how can it protect people and why you don't let things come in. my other, The other work I love as much is jury selection and helping other lawyers pick juries because they don't get to do that often enough. And if I have a, a second passion, it's that I think everyone in our country needs to understand how important jury duty is. So I teach my kids through the mock trial program how important jury duty is and how juries literally control the outcome for so many people who've been treated unfairly in our country and in our system. Um, so there's enough of that.
2: Well that's awesome. I know you get a few CLE hours. Um but I know the number of CLE hours you get is uh minuscule compared to the number of hours you actually put into the program. It's it is an impressive thing. One of our um friends, Judge Steve Dillard, that's his uh joy and heart also. He loves high school month. Oh, he
0: is so wonderful. The kids long. love him. Yeah. And so we we know about it through
2: him and now through you. And we appreciate your doing that because like you say now four of your students are in law school or going to law school and um you're helping them in a career. It's pretty pretty neat. Speaking of careers, tell us, do you have a special highlight of your career that when you look back over 30 something years, you say, Oh,
0: this was it. This was the number one thing. You know. I I struggled with this question because I knew you were going to ask me and I don't have an answer because my favorite case is always the last one I tried and won. Every time. Um, I I certainly understand that. I can talk about the ones I win all day. I I would say one of my all-time favorites was a very complicated legal malpractice case where we had an employment discrimination case where an error had been made. But the client in the underlying matter was, I kid you not, a brain surgeon she was a pediatric neurosurgeon and she had been discriminated in the course and scope of her employment. So we deposed or I got to cross-examine cold on the stand certain witnesses who had not been deposed neurosurgeons about neurosurgery. And that was probably the biggest courtroom charge I've ever had. That yeah. was a lot of fun because I love medicine. Wow. Yeah. And you probably had to really
2: get up on a certain level of expertise you'd be able to ask certain questions.
0: I now know how to pronounce Milo-Meningasil, which I hope I just got right. And if I got it wrong, no doctor calling, correct me, please. That's funny.
2: What would you tell young lawyers just starting out in their careers? What advice would you give to a, a young lawyer or to Jenny Jensen 30 years ago?
0: What you see on TV is not what the practice of law is. If you can do anything else and be happy doing it, you should do it, Um, which is advice that's often given to people who are considering the ministry, Um, because it's not easy. Um, The practice of law is not easy. The business of practicing law was something that I had greatly underestimated. I came out of law school thinking I would just work for somebody and I would get a paycheck and I would represent people with passion and I would go into court. And it turns out you have to do that yourself. You have to set up your most of the most plaintiff's lawyers anyway, set up their own firms. They practice with other people. The business of practicing law has turned out to be much more taxing than I expected. Um, And I also thought I'd be in court a whole lot more than I am. Um, I love court, not as fond of discovery. I don't think any lawyer really is. Although discovery is important. It just is so much reading, so much attention to detail. If you don't love it, you're not going to be happy here. Um, but I would have said you need to take a business class or two. And for the love of God, take a psychology class while you're in college. You can't begin to underestimate how important it is to understand how other people think when you're going to be representing them, talking to them and trying to convince them or just dealing with them on a regular basis. If I had it to do over, I would take a couple of business classes on how to run a business and I would get, you know, take some psychology classes Fortunately, my father was a minister. I was around counseling. I had exposure to that sort of thing, but I wished I had more formalized training. I focused on reading and political science and social sciences and the law and some more practical skills would have been really, really helpful. But I do love what I do. And, you know, if you love it and you're willing to do the work and you're willing to invest, there's not a better career out there.
2: I I agree, and I I love to recommend it for young women um, because you can have more flexibility with your schedule. I think it works well. You're going to get married and have children. You can have a a more flexible schedule than a lot of careers. It's been good to me. I know it's been good to Lester Tate, that's for sure. Um, (laughs) But even for trial lawyers like we are, it's a lot of reading and writing. People, I don't think people understand how much we read and write.
3: But I, I also want to commend both of you because, uh, I, you know, and look, the, the law has uh, law as a profession has plenty of uh, uh, misogynist and discriminatory habits, just like almost every other profession uh, that's that's going on out there. But I, I feel like sometimes uh, and, and I, I hate when I hear this sort of chorus from younger lawyers about how horrible the law is and, you know, how, how they hate this and they hate that. And I, I've, I've found that I particularly hear that a lot from women and uh, from younger women who want to raise a family. And that is always uh, that is always, you know, a concern. And, you know, the process of childbirthing may necessarily take the woman out of out of practice longer than uh, than than uh, the, the dad. But both of you do a great job of promoting that this profession which I just dearly love to, to young women. And you're both great examples of how you can be successful in that. And, uh, you know, and still, you know, have those personal goals and yet, you know, be a mother uh, or, or a father. Uh, I, I like to think we have uh, cross gender, uh, uh, cross gender uh, inspiration now, you know, too. Uh, so having been a father uh, to two myself while practicing law in a small town, I hope that uh, there, there are men that catch that inspiration, too. But it's just really refreshing to for me to hear that when I hear a lot of people that are sort of early on and disgruntled. And and I I kind of feel like they're in the wrong area of the law. Not that they're not. It's not the law generally, but it's whatever area they landed in that they're sort of unhappy with. And I hate to see the entire profession uh, damned by that. And I appreciate uh, both of your evangelistic uh, support for uh, yeah. how, how good it can be.
2: Well, thank you, Lester, for saying that. And I'll say I'm fortunate enough that my daughter, Alex, who just graduated from UGA Law School, uh, is going to be a lawyer and studying for the bar right now. And um, my husband's a lawyer. And so at least we, one of our children decided that it must not be too bad of a way of life. You know, mom and dad both do it, and she's doing a great job. So I'm proud of, proud of her that as a young woman um, and very independent, um, very smart, she decided she wanted to practice law. I, I just think it's one of the best, I think it's personally best, one of the best careers, one of the best professions, a calling um, that we have in America.
0: It's it's definitely a calling, which is why a moment ago I analogized it to being a preacher. You have to be called. You have to want to serve. You want to have to work hard um, because people need our help.
3: Yeah, And you also reminded us too, Jenny, that uh, I had, I remember back during the O.J. Simpson trial, the pastor of our, our church asked me, he said, Lester, is that the way it is going to court? And I said, Jim, I just want you to know one thing real lawyer and has as much to do with TV lawyering as real preaching does with TV preaching. Uh, and uh, making that distinction, I think, is 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 very important.
0: You got it. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's not what you see on TV. It's a lot of reading and a lot of book work.
2: Yeah. Speaking of that, Jenny, is there a, I like to ask, is there a personal tenant or, you know, I know you're a, a faithful person. You and I have the United Methodist Church in common. Um, but is there a, a, a personal tenet that you practice by that you say this is my motto or this is my mantra or, or however you want to say it?
0: You know, not that clearly. Um, I, I watched, listen to several of y'all's podcasts in anticipation of doing this one today, and I would say the golden rule comes as close to it as anything does. I just always try to think if I were on the other side as the client or the opposing lawyer or the judge or how would I want to be treated? I want to treat people the way I want to be treated. Um, and I follow that as long as I can. And then, um, we can't if you can't follow that any farther then I'm going to treat you as fairly as I can while I go to war with you and then we'll go to war. Um, but, and, and I'm as good at that as I am at being nice, but I'd sure, um, I guess, and this is the other part of it. I'll quote my mother again, you catch more flies with sugar than you do with vinegar. Yeah. And I got big buckets of both. That's true. I, I hear
2: that a lot too. And I try to do that as well. Um, Jenny, it's been wonderful talking with you. Um Talking with you today kind of reminds me of my time on um, on the investigative panel or the review panel. Once we had a, a big meeting, all I could think about was getting back to the office and looking at my files to see where I've messed up. Or uh, now I feel like I need to write a letter in every single file. But after talking with you today, I think I'm going to go to my filing cabinet and pull out every file and do something on them.
0: I will tell you what I can say at all of my CLEs. Every year on or around January 1st, I sit down and reread the Georgia ethics rules. They're not that long. It doesn't take that much time. But I find that every time I read them based on the cases I'm working on at any given point in time, I see completely different things or I read them completely differently. And I think as lawyers, we become complacent that we know and we don't always remember to go back and look, and I will credit the first lawyer I worked for for this. I would go and ask the most mundane, simple questions that I didn't want to research because I was trying to get an assignment done, and he would say, "Can anybody quote it with me?" Read what the does role. the rule say? No um, read the rules. As you get older, you have to remember to go back and see what does the rule say. Um, but anyway, that and, and I like everybody else. Every time I talk about cases that I've handled. I wake up in the middle of the night with at least one deadline. I'm like, oh, my God, where did I calendar it? When is it and is it there? And then thank the good Lord you don't have to get in your car and drive to your office anymore really? to look at your calendar. It's just on your phone. You can roll over, look at it, and then go back to sleep. Yeah.
3: There's <laughs> nobody on this that's not driven to the office. at some an hour to look at a paper <laughs> <know>. calendar. We're, <laughs> a, we're of a certain age. Exactly. Uh,
2: <laughs> I remember once driving to my office right after church. I, I missed the entire church because I was thinking about a file, and I said, I've got go to I gotta go to my office after two church.
0: Two o'clock in the morning. I woke up one morning at two o'clock in the morning, got in my car, in my pajamas, went and picked <laughs> a piece of paper up off my desk. Was right that I was not wrong, but had to see it, had to yeah. lay hands on it. Yeah.
2: Well, uh, Jenny, we always ask uh, the same question, the same last question of our guests. Um, and I've asked you to be thinking a little bit about it, but
0: how do you define justice? So I started thinking about how to define justice because that's huge and amorphous, and I just don't really think like that. And then I'm an acronym person, so I started just making notes on a sheet of paper. All of my words start with P, and I will just take you through my P words as they apply to um, justice. Justice to me is about protection penalties, and punishment. Um, And what I mean by that is everybody in our country should be treated the same. And justice takes power and levels it out and protects the people who don't have the control. Um, And they can be compensated for their harms. And the people who do wrong can be penalized and incentivized to stop doing their wrongs. Um, It levels out prejudice. It provides protection, and then I end up with, it's a process, it's always in progress, it isn't perfect, but we're moving in a positive direction. So that's how I would define justice, as something that levels out power to protect people and penalize people. And we're always moving in a direction we hope is positive to perfect that, so. And
2: how about it can, can sometimes give you peace?
0: I don't hit that as often as I would like, but I would hope that eventually if we have enough process, progress, and we get positive enough, we can achieve perfection and have peace. How's that? And
3: thank prosperity. And
0: so prosperity. <laughs> I knew there was one I missed. It was so funny because I'm thinking about it and I'm like, why is every word I'm thinking of oh, with a P? Funny. I'm just going with the same. <laughs> yep.
2: But, well, thank you. Thank you, Jenny. Right. Uh, I love the definition that you came up with. We'll we'll be thinking about that. Um, thank you for being a guest on the show today. We, we really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you very much for having me. I had a fantastic time. Um, Fred, Lester, and Robin, thank you so much for inviting me. And y'all have a fantastic rest of your day. Thanks. Jenny, thank you. Bye.
1: All
2: right, Lester. Uh, now is the time that we—I actually love this part of our podcast—but where we have seen something recently in the news, law-related, and we'd like to bring it to our listeners' attention and share it with them. So, what do you have today?
3: Well, Robin, you know, I frequently we talk about how we do this podcast, and you're—you're you're very organized. You have us—have us an outline. You have all these things, and I go off in these different directions. And so today, you asked me. You know, I had two of these, you asked me before and I gave you two and I've changed my mind in the (laughs) middle of this uh, thing because uh, some of the things we're talking about made me recall an article that I had read uh, just yesterday. So I'm going in a whole different direction and I want to uh, commend to our leaders, uh, to our uh, listeners uh, a June 17th, 2022 article in the New York Times entitled, uh, John Grisham is still battling his Southern demons. And it's a question and answer with uh, novelist uh, John Grisham, uh, who is uh, 67 years old, began his career as a small town lawyer and politician. And uh, as I read this, and and I think part of it goes back to the time that I hung a shingle was about the time he wrote the first Jake Brigant's uh, novel, which was about a small town lawyer. Um, And so uh, John Grisham talks about his involvement uh, with the law. And I mean, he's written some really great books and he's written some probably not so good books. But uh, I I think one of the reasons I enjoy him is I think it always sort of reflects uh, a lawyer's viewpoint and the things that you learn from our profession. And uh, in this, he said, uh, uh, it talks about when he began his career, he had, he says, and I quote, I had strong ambitions of being a skilled courtroom lawyer. That was my goal inspired by some great old-fashioned country trial lawyers in Mississippi I knew. I was never afraid of going to court. Most lawyers are. A lot of them are afraid to try a case in front of a jury, but I thrived on that. I dreamed of being so good that people with really good cases, injury cases, wrongful death or medical malpractice cases would come to me and I'd have a chance to make some money, which I never did. And so he was also writing uh, novels at the time and, of course, uh, sold a screenplay uh, to uh, the firm, and it sort of launched his literary career. And uh, but he, he talks so much in this article about the things that are important, you know, in representing people. And uh, he says, "I've I've come a long way." Says Grisham, who was a lawyer and politician before turning uh, to writing. Once I became a lawyer, most of my clients were poor people, working people, minority people who had no money. We were on one side of the street. On the other side of the street were people with money. Real quick, I realized where I stood in life and where I was going to be in life. And so much of what comes after that, I think, uh, gives voice to the Atticus Finch adage that you don't really understand people until you have the opportunity to walk around in their shoes. And that's one of the things that uh, uh, Atticus Finch uh, typified in fictional literature and that I think is a tradition that John Grisham's carried on and so I would uh, highly commend uh, uh this article uh to our listeners.
2: I I haven't read that yet but I'm going to I know he has a new book out called well it's novella's called Sparring Partners. Um so I definitely um definitely want to read that and just um I remember being in your office once and you talked about you know in your office you have brick walls you overlook the square of Cartersville, very much like Jake in A Time to Kill. And I and I remember feeling like that's what Jake's office was was like. So while you were talking about that, I, I, I started thinking you should write a book.
3: <laughs>
2: no, I'm not. I'm not joking.
3: <laughs> well, uh, you know, uh if I if I could uh if I could uh turn uh turn my story into a John Grisham novel, I'd be happy to do that. You know, that'd be
2: uh I'm I'm in your corner on that. I think it'd be great. All right. Well my my items, uh I have two short ones, both dealing with lawyer misconduct given our guest Jenny Jensen today and our topic, but um two of them that are just crazy unbelievable. Two lawyers who seemingly were at the top of their profession, top of their game. Uh, and then they did something so fundamentally immoral and wrong uh, that they are now in both in prison. One's in prison, one's going to be in prison, I'm pretty sure. But the first one is this guy, Michael Avenatti, uh, who um, was, was convicted of stealing money from his client who was Stormy Daniels. Um, and, and he stole money from a book advance. Stormy Daniels was a, a woman who had, had some information against uh, the former president alleged affair with him. He, then he um, attempted to, to extort millions of dollars from Nike. Um, he is now serving a five-year prison term, and now this week pled guilty to, to uh, numerous counts of wire fraud, bank fraud, um, there were there were numerous counts, and and the uh, Department of Justice is going to end up uh, dismissing 31 because he pled guilty. But Michael Avenatti, there there was a moment, brief moment when he he was on CNN every day talking about running for president, and now he's an inmate. And and then the other one is this lawyer Alex Murdoch in um, South Carolina. Uh, I think he's from Hampton, South Carolina. I can't remember, but. Uh, Burdock, I think. Burdock, yeah, uh, who has done so much, I, can't, I don't even really know where to start other than he has stolen approximately, approximately $8.5 million from his own clients who hired him in various lawsuits, um, which we all said is a no-no, can't lie, cheat, or steal, and it, apparently this attorney has done all of those things. And he is in jail now awaiting trial. I think they've got so many different counts against him. They're not even sure what all they'll try him on, but it's fair to say he's gonna be in prison for a a very long time. And he was definitely uh, very well respected in South Carolina. Everyone knew his family. Um, And now he's looking at probably the rest of his life in prison. It's just uh, hubris is the word that comes to mind But also given what we've been talking about, um, these are examples of two very, um, two lawyers who did very wrong things. Uh, They stole from their clients, clearly stole from their clients. Um, And it's just, it's just sad. You see that in some lawyers who get so much power and fame, and then it turns out that they're really um, unethical. So I point that out the South Carolina guy. is just that whole story is, is fascinating. I bet there will be a book written about that.
3: So there, I think there already is another uh, podcast, not that I want to uh, promote them in lieu of ours, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, I just want to make clear too, that, um, it, you know, I think as we've talked about some of this today, you know, a lot of times we're like, Oh yeah. You know, we are kind of laughing about it a little bit and, um, uh, I, and i and I know for you and 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 I'm sure uh, Jenny too you know i'm I'm horrified by what these lawyers have done, yeah, and uh the 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 sort of laughter about it is that they thought they could get away with this, okay. and that you know they didn't have to read uh that like Jenny was talking about reading the. Uh, re- reading the ethics code, you know, it wasn't because they missed a section of the ethics code that these things happen. It's just, just absolute straight up criminal stuff.
2: And greed. Yes. And, you know, yes. Um, it, it's really sad, sad statement. Um, yes. those, are, those are not the majority of them. The majority of lawyers are honest, ethical, uh, caring, but these two guys really stand out as what we say shouldn't, they shouldn't be part of our profession
3: my opinion, I agree.
2: All right, Lester, it's been a great, uh, a great episode. And I want to remind our, our uh, listeners, you've been uh, listening to See You in Court, which is sponsored by the Georgia Civil Justice System or Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. And we also want to thank our producer, Teras Raz Misher, And we thank our listeners. You can learn more about Lester uh, at AikenTate.com and more about me, Robin Clark, at GATriallawyers.net. And you can also learn more about our podcast at cuincourt.squarespace.com. We hope you subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends and family.
1: Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuncourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to cuncourtpodcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who helped bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Fraser clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.